I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. For some people, there is a single defining moment when an internal vow of smallness was made. For others, this cringing of the spirit comes from a repetitive and insidious rivulet of disapproving glares, mocking jeers, or shaming of their particular flair. Sometimes it is the eclipsing nature of another's personality in whose shadow you lived. But we do learn it. We learn that if we want to fit in, we must split off shrink down, and make ourselves silent or invisible. We learn to live life with a limited palette of colors considered acceptable for public expression, while the darker, more vivid gradients of the human condition are stricken from the conversation. Driven into isolation are secret grief, hidden failings, shameful desires, and vulnerabilities can survive the whole length of a life in concealment, refugees even from our own view. But by disassociating from the fullness of our being, we become much more susceptible to what the poet John O'Donohue calls the trap of false belonging. Our longing for community and purpose is so powerful that it can drive us into joining established groups, systems of belief, or even employments and relationships that, to our diminished or divided self, give the impression of belonging to something greater. But these places often have their own motives and hidden contracts. They grant us conditional membership, requiring us to cut off parts of ourselves in order to fit in. Rather than committing to the slow accumulation of intimacy that it takes to weave a life of true belonging, we try to satisfy our longing by living in marginalizing places. These groups may offer us membership, but only in exchange for our conformity to their conventions or goals. It may be a career that meets our security or status needs, but requires us to put our creativity and feelings aside. It may be a relationship that keeps us from loneliness, but excludes our anger or depression. Maybe it's a religious or spiritual group that binds us to its lineage, but expects our subservience to a guru or leader. Traditional patriarchal groups have a clearly delineated hierarchy, where the whole structure is dependent upon a single leader or entity, and our membership is contingent upon our agreement with its views. 
we have an innate longing to be of service to something larger than ourselves. Sadly, that devotional quality is often exploited by these kinds of organizations. For instance, the military uses our longing for kin and purpose to recruit for war. It is often much later that one realizes the group doesn't actually want their uniqueness, but their conformity so that it can be manipulated for its own goals. But everyone is born with a set of sacred agreements to a higher authority than those of this world. Like a pole star, there is a divine self which directs and shapes our lives into what we're meant to become. Sooner or later, we must navigate by our star's light, or risk being lost in the dark night of the soul. Often when your pole star begins to rise, people in your family or community will dismiss, underestimate, even criticize you at that pivotal juncture. One of the great silent contracts of false belonging is that you remain a follower. As soon as you try to step into a leadership role, you're met with resistance. The group feels threatened by the emerging sexuality, the charisma, intelligence, or creativity that shakes up the order of things. On some level, your rising star may be interpreted as another's demotion or loss of relevance. Your star's very existence brings the ranks into question. Can there be more than one star in the family? And so the star in us declines to rise, maybe from the fear of putting our belonging in jeopardy, maybe from the lack of resilience that comes from a history of being undermined or unsupported. But in many cases, we are the ones who put our star self away. We do it not only once, but perpetually, shrinking back from opportunities, from difficult conversations, from disagreements, even from a flashy outfit, a strong emotion, an awkwardness, staying in our cramped residence for fear of the alternative. The difference between fitting in and belonging is that fitting in, by its very definition, is to parcel off our wholeness in exchange for acceptance. Like the original Grimm's telling of Cinderella, her sisters literally cut off their own toes to fit into her tiny slipper. False belonging prefers that we hold our tongue, keep chaos at bay, and perform a repetitive role that stunts our natural inclination to growth. We may live for a while in such places, leaving well enough alone, taking its benefits while ignoring the costs. But the difficulty begins when those hidden contracts begin to show themselves. Maybe we knew it all along and it's just become impossible to ignore. Maybe it started taking too much of a toll on us, or maybe we are awakening through conflict, illness, or loss. But there is always a threshold at which we can no longer compromise ourselves. While false belonging can be useful and instructive for a time, the soul becomes restless when it reaches a glass ceiling, a restriction that prevents us from advancing. We may shrink back from this limitation for a time, but as we grow into our truth, the invisible boundary closes in on us and our devotion to the group mind weakens. While it may feel like a lack of loyalty to break from the group, you are answering a higher authority which, paradoxically, might also be the life of the group wanting to grow through you. Though more often than not, existing structures don't listen to their constituents because they want things to remain as they are or grow in a single, unsustainable direction. But the greatest leaderships don't create followers, they create innovators. 
The healthy circle of belonging welcomes conflict and dissonance as the early warnings they are, signaling change and calling for growth. Your rebellion is a sign of health. It is the way of nature to shatter and reconstitute. Anything or anyone who denies your impulse to grow must either be revolutionized or relinquished. As Marianne Williamson famously wrote, it is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Ultimately, I think we're afraid of the demands it makes on our complacency. Nature is always calling us into greater gestures of bravery, and as we accept those invitations to our personal edge, we lose the ability to shrink into falseness. The practice above all practices is to relinquish the immature desire to be taken care of in false belonging and to parent our own originality. Again and again, our dreams demand leadership from us, calling our life's vision forward into the world, step by tender, brave step. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. What you just heard was a excerpt from Belonging by Toko Pa. This was a book that we read last month, I believe, last month, two months ago. Time has become very strange. Um, I think we read it last month for our official Millennial's Guide book club. And I wanted to read it to you today. I've been wanting to read that section of the book to all of you for quite some time because I feel as if it relates so deeply to what, um, where this podcast came from in my own life and where I hope it's also helping to bring you. And um, it definitely relates to this conversation as well. Uh, the conversation you're going to hear is with uh, my friend Jasmine. If you are a regular listen of the, listener of the podcast, you might recognize her. She has a podcast called Cosmic Tonic, um, and Jasmine Kestrel and Eliza came on the show to talk about astrology, uh, the astrology of the times. It was a few episodes ago, um, and they're going to be coming back relatively frequently to talk about astrology with all of you. So Jasmine returned to the show, but this time with her partner, Andre, who's mostly na- uh, known as DJ Sun. And, uh, we had a conversation about race, and uh, it's a conversation I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a long time, and was sort of patient about it, and um, wanted to find the right people to do it with, and I don't think there could have been better people than Jasmine and Andre. Um, as you'll hear, they both come from a very nuanced background, have a very nuanced uh, perspective about race and identity politics and the movements going on. Uh, which are reflections of race in this country right now. One of the many things we talk about are how we find ourselves identifying with and feeling a part of larger movements that are going on, whether that's the Black Lives Matter movement or the feminist movement or the gay rights movement or the Me Too movement. Um, There are all these large movements that um, are supposed to be fighting for and reflective of a certain group of people but obviously they cannot represent all of us. And so as a woman, you know, relating to the Me Too movement, how do I find my place within that movement if I don't feel 
like it represents all of me. It reminds me when I was a kid and my mother would take me to temple. Uh, I was raised Jewish. And for a very, very, very long time, I did not have any sort of personal relationship to being raised Jewish. And um, it didn't really make a ton of sense for me to me. Eventually, as I got older, I started to relate to certain things about it and was able to sort of piecemeal for myself what made me feel good, what felt right to me, what felt aligned to me, and what didn't. But for a long time, I really struggled with finding myself within a group that didn't align with all of my interests. And I remember one story in particular. I was a little bit older at this point, so I had the sort of ability to think critically about things. And I was really motivated and curious about I think spirituality more broadly, maybe not Judaism specifically, but sort of how I was going to relate to what was going on here at these holidays and these celebrations and these um, services and sermons, etc. And I went with my mom. I forget what holiday it was. It may have been the High Holy Days. It may have been Passover. I'm not sure. But we were we went to celebrate this holiday at the temple with all of the other members, and this was a pretty reformed progressive temple in New York City and we're all sitting at small tables of about nine people or so and one of the things they wanted us to do as a community is nominate one person from the table to speak about some sort of civil rights issue or social justice issue and I was the youngest person at the table and at that point in my life I was very very passionate about uh, gay marriage because of my father being gay And I had a lot to say about this topic. And at this point, you know, this was probably now 15 years ago or so, um, maybe a little less than that, but the gay rights movement has made a lot of progress in that period of time. Um, And still at this time, even in the sort of progressive temple, it felt a bit scandalous or nerve wracking for me to stand up and talk about gay marriage, but I was really motivated to do it. I wanted to participate in something that meant something to me. I forget what the sort of conversation prompt was, but somehow I was going to be talking about this in relation to whatever holiday was going on. So the the table sort of said, "Okay, sure, yes, you do it. You know, you're the you're the young person. You know, we want to nominate you to say what you feel passionately about saying." And then there was a break and I think other people were talking or the rabbi was speaking and I started taking some notes because I wanted to make sure I knew what I wanted to say. You know, obviously I was young and nervous about standing up in a group of people and a woman next to me noticed that I was taking notes and slapped my hand and told me I wasn't allowed to be writing. And for whatever reason, according to, you know, the Torah or the rules of the synagogue, um, I'm sure anyone who's more familiar with Judaism, uh, probably knows what holiday I was at and when, what they were talking about. Um, I think it was because it was uh, representative of work or something. And she slapped my hand and she said, you're not allowed to be writing. You have to stop that. And like, the amount of like collapsing in on myself that happened in that moment, I felt such a mixed bag of embarrassment and anger and frustration. And once I could sort of calm myself down, I think I did end up speaking, but I totally that night stormed out and got really mad at my mother for taking me to this place. And what I was railing against so hard was like, it's 
it feels nearly impossible for me to sit in a group of people, in a collective, in a community, even if I agree with a handful of things that they say, if there's one big piece of differentiation, this doesn't feel right to me. You know, I, I would sometimes imagine I when I was married, my my ex-husband sometimes took us to a church, um, and I hadn't gone to many churches churches ever growing up but he took us to the church and I actually like agreed with a lot of what they were talking about but I knew because I researched the church and the sect and the whatever the specificity of that group of people and I knew that they did not stand for gay marriage and so I felt like such a traitor and such a false person for sitting in that room and it didn't matter that I agreed with a bunch of what they were saying because we didn't share this core belief or this core value It felt dirty and gross to me. And I feel really grateful that without context and without any sort of education about this or wording related to this, that I just intuitively felt that something was off there and that what I was doing, I think very unconsciously or subconsciously from that point on was either trying to find a group that I did feel 100% aligned with or creating one of those groups myself. And I do think it's difficult, of course, you know, we're going to be in groups of people, in communities, in collectives where every single person does not align on every single thing, you know. It's not homogenous to a fault by any stretch of the imagination. But there are some core world views that to me seem required, at least for me, to be a part of that group or not. And what I feel saddened about, what I what I understand and feel empathetic to, but what I feel saddened about is that I feel like right now this false belonging is reaching an all-time high. I think because we're panicking collectively. We're totally stressed out. We're realizing how little control we have We realize how the future we thought we might have might not be so. At every step of the way, we are surprised. At every step of the way, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop, for the rug to be pulled out from under us. We really cannot do much but exist in the present. And of course, for for all of us, that becomes uh, very difficult, especially from a Western perspective. And I think those of us who listen to this podcast, for example, who are more progressive, who are more maybe on the left... We think that that's only happening in conservative groups, or we think that that's where it's happening the most. These sort of destructive racist movements, these right-wing, crazy, xenophobic, misogynistic movements, we think that that's where people are getting sucked into conspiracy, into false belonging, into believing something simply because they can be accepted, not necessarily because they agree with the values and morality of that group. But I feel like what the past year has taught me is that it's happening just as much on the left. It's happening just as much in spiritual, progressive communities. And that's been hard for me because while I've not like signed any sort of contract that, you know, adheres me to any sort of spiritual group, there have been a lot of people who I follow Um, whose podcasts that I listen to, whose newsletters I subscribe to, whose, you know, who I recommended to other people as uh, humans that were standing for something just and um, thought through and nuanced and rational and logical. 
And this past year, I've found that a lot of people who I thought were doing the right thing or who I thought were approaching things in an adult, critical thinking type of a way are not at all doing that. And they're using communities of spirituality, whether that be yoga or astrology or Reiki or anything even more broad than that to fit into this, what in my mind and what in my body feels like total and utter irrationality. And that isn't to say that I guess some of these people prior to this year, prior to these events that made me realize these things, there were signs for sure. There were, self, there were signs of some sort of self-righteousness or virtue signaling or but I thought maybe that was, you know, an outlier behavioral trait. I didn't think that was overarching. And I think I thought when I sort of came through my own dark night of the soul, and this is something that Tokopa describes uh, going through in her journey as well in her book, Belonging, um, is that I think when we, we feel that we've gone through the dark night of the soul, we sort of reject these conventional patriarchal structures, we follow our path of authenticity, we go through this hero's journey, we think that when we opt into these sort of more spiritually open-minded types of groups that um, everyone is thinking in the same way, they're approaching things with caution, they're using an incredible amount of discernment, they're being extremely self-reflective, they're in therapy, they're conscious of their projections. But that isn't happening across the board. And I knew that there was a segment of the that spiritual, let's say, group, which is obviously very broad, but I knew there was a large segment of that group involved in spiritual bypassing, which I remember when I first uh, started studying astrology, I talked about quite a bit. So I knew that existed, but I didn't, I thought that was the outlier. I thought that was the minority. And what I'm beginning to see is that so many people in that group, so many people in the collective as a whole are so susceptible and have been so sucked into some sort of group think. And, and as I've said quite often, you know, it's it's not necessarily like those with the narcissistic personality straight traits that are the most horrifying for me. It's it's the the followers that they have. Like those people really wouldn't be able to get very far if the people listening to their podcast or reading their writing were reaching out and being like, hey, you know, in a in a kind, constructive way, like, hey, you know, you said this one thing, but I'm feeling like that doesn't really align with who I thought you were. And of course that gives them the opportunity to either be like, fuck you or, you know, engage in some sort of constructive discussion. Um, but I think so often we put people or ideas or religions or um, just, we put all of these things on a pedestal and it's just easier. It's just like, okay, I'll just be a vegetarian or a vegan because like someone told me that was better for the environment. So I'm not really going to think much about that. I can just sort of check that box and I don't have to think about it anymore. You know, oh, you know, I, I listened to a couple episodes of this astrologer's podcast and he or she sounded, you know, cool and smart. So I'm just going to follow everything they say and I'm not going to question it and I'm not going to think critically about it. And I understand why we do that. I think it's exactly what Tokopa Turner explained. <laughs> But it's really fucking vital, I feel like, at this point in what we're going through to not do that. Even if your questioning or your critique or your skepticism 
makes you feel a bit more alone, that is so much better and so much constructive to both you and everyone around you for you to be realistic about that, for you to be, yes, a bit more isolated and not just buy into an ideology or a rhetoric that doesn't 100% align with what you think. Because these, this is more than just ideas, you know, in the, in the um, book that we're reading now for the book club, this is just like the book club theme podcast, um, but the book we're reading now is Cosmos and Psyche by Richard Tarnas, and I'm only about 50 pages in, but he spoke about something at the beginning of the book that I think about all the time and that I'd like to elaborate on more in future podcasts, but he said a line about how worldviews create worlds, you know, and of course, worldviews and worlds take a long time to coalesce into anything that's tangible and real. But I really do think that if we dial everything back and we sort of peel back all the details, that if we believe certain things, align ourselves in certain ways, and then we live in that respect, that that is really how we change the world. It's by understanding who we are, understanding what we believe in, understanding what we value, and then physically, tangibly, realistically putting that into practice in our everyday lives. So I know that sometimes it might feel like all we're doing is leaving a review of a podcast or commenting on someone's social media or sharing an article with a friend. But if you take that more broadly, all of those little teeny things that we're doing, all of those actions that we're taking that are reflective of our beliefs and our values are creating something. To me, the sort of internal and the external are inextricably linked. And I don't know, maybe that responsibility that comes with the understanding that the actions that we're taking are actually doing something in the outside world, maybe that would make us a little bit more cautious about what beliefs we take on as our own or that we prop up and put on pedestals. And I know firsthand, like, it's very difficult to read something sometimes from, let's say, an author that you really respect. I'm, it's happening right now in these book clubs, right? Mm -hmm. There are these books that I'm having that I think are going to be amazing, that I think I'm going to be aligned with, that I'm having all a bunch of my patrons read. And of course, what I want is for that book to be 100% aligned with my belief system. Actually, thankfully, the two books we've read have been. But there's always the possibility that we choose one of these books or I just read a book or you read a book on your own. And although you agree with like 70% of it, there's another 30% of it. that's like, uh, not really like that part doesn't sit well with me. If I were to write this book, I would write it a little bit differently. That's not a sign of, of weakness. That's such a sign of health. You know, skepticism is within reason, a very, very healthy trait. And I know that it's difficult sometimes because it really does require, it's like you can feel your brain working to distinguish between what feels good and what doesn't feel good. And that can be even more difficult when you associate with a person or a group or an ideology, because there are going to be things probably that they say, these people say, these books say, these ideologies say that you're not totally comfortable with. And of course that could be slight, it could be minor, it could mean you still feel comfortable listening to that person and sharing their work and supporting their work, but maybe not. You know, there are people that I've been following for years that 
they say something and I just intuitively in my body feel like that's it. I'm done. I'm not going to participate in that anymore. I don't need to question my own intuition in that sense. I just know it's not for me. And of course, this is nuanced as everything is. This doesn't mean, you know, you just shut things out and you hate people and you cancel people because you don't agree with everything they say. That's not at all what I'm trying to promote. Um, You don't need to cancel them. You don't need to tell them you're unfollowing them. You can just choose for yourself that that's not your path anymore. And of course, this happens on a small scale too, right? This happens with friendships. This happens with relationships. It happens with our family members. It happens with our friends. You know, one, I think, symptom, um, result of going through a period of time, a dark night of the soul, where you discover more about yourself is that relationships seem to leave very quickly. Sometimes they can come into your life and they can leave so quickly. And the way I sort of look at it in a visual or symbolic sense is like when you're driving on the highway and there's a car that's passing you, depending on what speed each of you is is going, sometimes that car is going to be right next to you for a long period of time. You guys are going the same speed. Maybe not for years and years and years is that like two miles per hour going to put one of you ahead of the other, right? But sometimes there's a big difference. Sometimes one person's going a lot faster. You know, there were people that I met when I started going through this whole process for myself that were aligned with me in certain ways. They were spiritual. They were thinking about things. They were into astrology and tarot. But then very quickly as I progressed, they felt sort of stunted to me. They, I didn't feel mirrored. I didn't feel like I was learning much from them. I didn't really feel like that relationship was adding to my life. And it was hard because I felt like a shit person. You know, I still go through this. I feel like a bitch because I just don't feel like we're lined up anymore. Especially when you meet people who are lined up with you, you start to recognize that distinction more and more. But it's a pretty devastating thing, I think, because we are a communal species. We want to belong. We want to live in a group. And when we find a group, when we find a community that accepts us, we just want to forget about it. We just feel grateful to be there. We just don't want to think about the alienation or the isolation anymore. But then sometimes someone says something or does something or that group deviates from what you thought it was and you have to sort of once again jump off the island without knowing if you're going to find another. You know, you have to speed your car up not knowing who's going to come next and how long they're going to be there. And I understand how frightening that is, not just in in a logical way, but in a bodily way as well. And I do think that we're in a period of time in the world in general um, where, at least in this country, a lot of people are feeling a lot more brave and allowed to speak about nuance, to speak about their ideas. There, I feel like there are a lot more groups that are visible, I think, in large part due to podcasts. It's a lot easier to find like-minded people when you actually have access to what people are saying and thinking. So... Uh, I hope that this podcast is at least partially that for you. I know 
in talking to a lot of my patrons who are participating in these WhatsApp groups that we have, um, that just even if these people are across the world um, or in another state, totally inaccessible in a tangible way, especially right now with COVID, just knowing that there's something we can step into. It's like you can see the lighthouse light on the island, you know, before you get there and that that's enough to keep you going. So I just... I definitely urge everyone to feel okay about rejecting things that feel off, even if some of it feels good, even if all of it felt good before. We change, we grow. The more time we spend with someone or within a group, the more we learn about them, the more we learn about ourselves. And inevitably what that means is that there are going to be transitions and those transitions are okay. And honestly, the more often you allow yourself to go through those transitions, you know, incorporating the fear and being courageous and brave, the easier it becomes. The more like those transitions actually feel like a gift. You actually feel grateful that the rejection from the party you're at is just an invitation to a fancier, cooler party with way better music and people dressed in way weirder, cooler outfits. (laughs) I've been talking a while, so that's all I'm going to say in that respect. If you would like to support the podcast, I have just added a ton of perks to Patreon. So in addition to exclusive WhatsApp group chats, a book club, I um, am now offering, there's a big contact sheet, so everyone at every level who signs up on Patreon can put their information into a spreadsheet that talks your name, your social media, what you're interested in, what location you're at, um, and provides the option for other people to reach out if they're aligned with you or close to you or want to talk to you. So if you are in dire need of community who isn't, um, head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. And if you donate a few dollars every month, um, depending on what level you join, there are all sorts of ways to connect a lot deeper to this community. As I mentioned, we just begun our winter book club. Um, We are reading Cosmos and Psyche by Rick Tarnas. That is also a Patreon perk. Um, And I am also offering now patron-led workshops. So some people that support me on Patreon are professional astrologers. Um, They teach outdoor skills, foraging, etc. And so I'm going to give the opportunity for my patrons to offer workshops, workshops to the other patrons. These are going to be free of charge to everyone who is a patron, um, but they're donation-based, and all of that money is going to be to the individual who teaches the workshop, not me. Um, So if you are a patron and you have a skill that you'd like to share or some sort of seminar that you'd like to practice on the group, uh, reach out to me. If you are someone that wants to do that but you're not a patron, go to patreon.com slash onyakots and join, and I can tell you all about it. Of course, as always, if you do not want to support this podcast financially or you cannot, I totally understand. One really, really helpful way to not only support the podcast, but also help it reach more people, so to to support other people like us, is to go into iTunes, hit subscribe, scroll down past all the episodes, and there's a place there for you to leave some stars and a review. And the more people that leave reviews and rate the podcast and subscribe, the more likely the podcast is to show up on search results. It's ranked higher in lists. Um, and all of that is very helpful, of course. Uh, in addition, certainly just listening and sharing episodes with people who you think uh, might enjoy the podcast 
is also super useful. And also reach out to me. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, Jasmine, who you're about to hear, is going to return to the podcast with Kestrel and Eliza to do another astrology-themed episode. If you have a specific request of something you'd like us to cover, please let me know. And then, of course, if you ever have any ideas for podcast topics or episodes or guests, please do not hesitate to reach out, even if it's just to say hi. I love hearing from all of you. I am going to play you in today uh, with a song by DJ Sun, Andre, who you will hear on this podcast. This is a song called Tomorrow, so please enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side of this conversation.
thank you, Jasmine and Andre, for coming on the podcast. This is exciting because uh, Jasmine is my friend who's been on the podcast with uh, Cosmic Tonic in the past, and I've never met her partner, Andre, so this is like the first time we're meeting, and we're also doing a podcast. Um, so, yeah, I don't really even know how to uh, describe or sort of summarize what we're going to talk about. I really wanted to get Jasmine and Andre's perspective about the world, specifically as it regards race, I think, um, bringing, you know, obviously I feel qualified to kind of talk about like gender issues or sexuality, something that I actually have, you know, real world experience with, but, uh, I feel honored to be able to bring on people with other life experiences and circumstances, um, who I respect kind of talk about what they think about the world and, and uh, how they're <laughs> feeling. Um, so I guess if you guys want to just sort of briefly introduce yourselves, just so the audience has somewhat of an idea of who you are. Um, and then we can sort of jump off from there and love to kind of talk about what the hell's going on in the world right now. <laughs> uh, you're allowing me to go first, Jeff. Okay. So, um, I'm Andre, and uh, in the world, I'm mostly known as DJ Sun. Most people don't actually know my first name. I'm a recording artist, and I'm also a DJ, and um, own a bar in Houston called The Flat. And, um, you know, since people don't really see what I look like, I am multi-ethnic, uh, multi-racial in that my father's black and Chinese my mother, uh, for all intents and purposes, is white, but she was raised in the Caribbean until she was about 16 or 17 and then moved to Europe. So I have a very Caribbean uh, perspective on life uh, since I spent um, a, a, lot of peop- uh, a, a lot of time around people from the Caribbean. Uh, Suriname is where my father came from. Suriname is technically on the continent of South America, but uh, socio-politically belongs to the Caribbean. We play sports against Caribbean countries, for instance. And um, our socio-political structure resembles more like Trinidad, Guyana, Jamaica than it does Brazil, Paraguay, or any other of the South American countries. And we speak Dutch and English pretty fluently. So that kind of gives a background of, you know, it sets the stage for where, where I come from. Um, and uh yeah and so it's uh, i i live in a very mixed <laughs> environment in terms of w- what i've seen in in the years in my years on earth um and, and so that hopefully that kind of sets the stage for who i am yeah in this sure. in this conversation <laughs> this context anyway. yeah yeah no perfect thank you and my name is Jasmine Richardson and I, too, have a multiracial background for all intensive purposes. It may sound a little reductive, but my mother is white and my father is black. My mother is from Montreal, Canada, and my dad is from a small town called Washington on the Brazos, Texas. (laughs) And Andre and I are a couple, and so we both own our bar together, The Flat, And we also have a 15-year-old daughter who we adopted who is also 
multiracial. Both of her parents uh, are black. Uh, her father's black and her mother's white. So I think that gives a, a little context for <laughs> this conversation. Yeah, you, and you meant her mother's parents were also like biracial, right? Yes. Because her, yeah. her mother's, um, yeah, the product of like a, a white woman and a and an African-American man. Yes, exactly. So, I got that a little twisted. <laughs> we got it. We got it. Um, uh, but Trinity very much looks like Jasmine. Like mm, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty stunning, pretty airy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I haven't met her in person, but certainly via photographs, there's like an aura, you know, as well as just physical looks. Um, yeah, well, thank you guys. That is very helpful as to your backgrounds. Um, yeah, I guess uh, where to begin? It's such a weird thing to like record a podcast amidst such um, sort of insanity and shifting and change. Uh, but I guess, you know, keeping in mind the events of the time, you know, I I really try to focus on nuance as much as I can, like bringing a nuanced, you know, even paradoxical sort of um gray area conversation to issues, um, of all sorts. And, uh, race is one that I've always really wanted to talk about. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are a ton of examples for both of you as to where you sort of find yourself fitting into a more nuanced position as it regard, um, in relationship to like the sort of conventional rhetoric around race or the movements that are going on at any particular time. Um, but I'm curious, maybe just as a jumping off point and keeping in mind what's going on in the world right now, like what is something that a perspective or an opinion or um, just some thoughts that you've been having that may sort of deviate from or or are maybe more complex than the conventional rhetoric? Well, it's, it's interesting that you start off with the word nuanced um, because there's very little nuanced about what's going on now um, because we live in such a polarized society. These ideas are brought together in a very polarized way. Um, organizations are put together that very specifically. And, and it, it, there is a purpose for that, of course. And I'm speaking, for instance, about uh, Black Lives Matter. It's very, uh, very clear. There's no nuance there, like Black Lives Matter. And um, and and there's that's a very... Um, important movement, um, and of course, from from my perspective, um, th there is a lot of nuance to how I uh, carry myself in the community and wh what I represent, and and I'm often confronted with, um, well, where exactly are you in this in this community? And it makes me think, and it um, I'm challenged to to really think about all sides, you know. Um, and and I have come up with um, but a pretty simplified way of looking at how I grew up in the United States of America, and it was very much in a in a Caribbean culture. And so, how I translate that um, is is I think I think leads um, in my conversation, right, and, and in the way I think about um, race, culture, ethnicity. Uh, Etc. Because it, it, that is a little bit different from African American culture. Mm -hmm. It's a lot different, 
and and uh, until I'm challenged on it, uh, I I don't necessarily articulate it. Um, and in these last couple of months, there have been challenges from personal friends or from family members as to um, how exactly I feel about things, uh, etc. Um, so so that's that's kind of a starting off point for me. Um, what about you, Ted? Mm-hmm. Well, I I do think it's very challenging right now to be biracial. And I definitely come from that perspective when it comes to, quote unquote, choosing how to perceive the world. And it comes from from the way I was raised. I was raised with a white mother. I was raised with a black father. And Andre and I, we, we live through this lens of making sure that we are implementing how we perceive the world and everything that we do. And what I mean by that is, for example, the bar that we own, it's built into the culture to have people come together in this way that blurs all the lines of race and, you know, any other prejudices that people may have. I mean, our niche is music. So people come together to to hear the music at our bar. And I, I see it as something that is, is a lifestyle that we live. And the people that frequent our bar don't necessarily like think from, from that place of, of having these prejudices or, or being racist, for example. So I think that our position is, is really unique in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Do you feel, I'm curious, like, I mean, just let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Do you feel sort of like because you're mixed race, like, I'm curious, do you think if you weren't mixed race that that, like, how do you relate to that movement? Um, I, especially like, do you have other black friends who aren't mixed race and like, how do they see you within that space? Um, do you feel like this sort of constant push and pull between like wanting to be a part of something and support something, but also sort of feeling like a, you know, an outlier or um, either by your own choosing or just by your own upbringing, feeling like you don't necessarily know where to fit into that space or that movement or, or the values that are attached to it specifically, maybe? Well, from, from my perspective, right, when, when I took a hard look at it being challenged on, on some of these issues, um, I, again, thought back to, like, when I landed here as a 14-year-old and what I actually, like, gravitated towards and I was gravitating towards Caribbean culture, Caribbean community. Um, and, and that defined me more than anything else, whatever that stood for. Right. So to me, that's, um, that's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit narrowing to, um, to, to have, to be forced into like identifying one, one way or, or the other. Um, at the same time, I feel like Black Lives Matter 
is a very important organization and it needs to exist um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in order to, to further ideology uh, that says, hey, look, <laughs> um, law enforcement should not be, you know, just um, in a renegade style um, punishing uh, black males in, you know, in the United States of America just because of, um, well, racist notions, right, and certain perceived, uh, preconceived notions that um, that exist within our society, and that's you know that's since systemic racism. Um, so it it is it it is tough um, at at times to to even like articulate this or or have this conversation. And when you started off the question, it. Um, it, there's there's a very specific way that that I feel um, that it's you know that that would be hard to to um, <laughs> to penetrate right it's like um, I'm I'm mixed and so I have a mixed perspective it's it's hard for me to say well I'm I'm black and and I you know black power when I have a white mother, mm-hmm. but it's also the same the other way around. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I know that there is disadvantage to being of color. I've experienced that mm-hmm. as well. Um, I spent seven years in the Netherlands. I experienced it there. I experienced the opposite of it in, in Suriname when I was really one of the lightest kids because I'm biracial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, people were resentful, um, randomly as well and I was you know that was within a very young environment um so so yeah it puts it puts me specifically in a in a tough spot um and and again wanting to reiterate that I I really feel like there is use for um for movements that further the cause and bring attention to systemic racism Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't necessarily feel that I'm super qualified to to actually jump jump into those kind of issues um, because of uh, of my background and because of where culturally I I kind of fit in during my formative years here in, in the United States. Right. Yeah, it it's, is. It's a little bit of an identification issue, right? Um, right. Yeah. And, well, and th- we, you know, I mean, there's, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say like, there's also the, you know, the sort of split and intersection between who you are and how you identify and what your upbringing was, but also in the real world being in America, I would assume often looked at as an African American man. Right. So it's like, Oh, for sure. You know, so there's the, the sort of, internal understanding and identification about oneself that within this context really kind of only looks one way, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I feel that black lives matter is just so rooted in this need for change. And I do have a personal connection with the movement because I've witnessed this intense need for uh, for a change in the way 
law enforcement operates because my brother is incarcerated. And even though he's biracial, it doesn't matter. He's perceived as a black man by society. And I've watched what he's gone through, um, you know, in his development, becoming a man from the time that he was a teenager until, you know, he's 40 now. But um, it, it has not been easy for him to be in the system. And as you know, his sister and watching, watching that, my, my experience is different because I'm a woman, I feel like, but, um, I, I know firsthand how serious this problem is. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and how much, I mean, I had this question in my head today before he started recording, you know, (laughs) there was a, a woman of, um, uh, of color. I have these WhatsApp groups, um, for people who listen to my podcast and, uh, she shared how, I guess her, uh, son's girlfriend, I believe her family is all Trump supporters. And they're talking about like militias going out and it, you know, just sort of, um, indiscriminately, you know, hurting people of color. Um, and it mm-hmm. seems like, like, I'm curious from your perspective, from your experience, like, how much of what's going on right now, at least in this country, but also sort of worldwide, is about race and colonialization? Because I feel like there's so much noise <laughs> about, you know, the economy and power and politics and all of this stuff. And I'm always curious to sort of like identify the root cause of, of certain things. Um, and I'm interested to hear like, I feel like I've heard varying degrees of people feeling like, you know, this is all about race or this is, you know, only partially about race. And, uh, yeah, I'm just curious what what you sort of both think about that. Well, uh, I mean, from my perspective, it, um, you know, especially being someone of, of mixed race, right? I'm a product of, um, you know, two, two people who came together who were completely different. Mm. And so we're getting a different demographic within the United States of America. And I feel like there is this, this last form of resistance against that mm-hmm. because we are coming into, into the majority, so to speak. Right. And so, um, <laughs> the, the, the folks that are bringing this hatred about, um, uh, which is definitely endorsed, uh, if not led by Trump's rhetoric, um, have this fear, like racism is based out of fear mm-hmm. and it's fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. That's the way I see it, right? So in, instead of embracing the changes and uh, understanding that, you know, the way, I, the way I'm made and, and where I come from, I, it's not my, that's not my fault, right? This is the way I look. Um, but people are intimidated by that because they feel like change is coming and they're uh, supposedly extinct now, like the, uh, the old white man that is represented through Trump is is in his eyes extinct is becoming extinct right in in the united states of america so he's going to do everything and he's playing into this fear um to to be able to uh to to then put forth these these theories and these um this just just hatred and and um this this theory that they're no longer going to be relevant um and I think that's where that comes from, from my perspective. And so you stoke the fears, you bring up hatred, and then you get indiscriminate actions 
against people of color um, mm-hmm. because of those fears. And it has nothing to do with anything except those those folks are afraid. They're afraid of of becoming quote unquote extinct. And we're all one human race, you know. And it's, it's um, but, but I I guess it's it's hard for me to understand where they're coming from because I am mm-hmm. someone of of mixed of mixed race. So I've got everything within me you know so mm-hmm. um what does it feel like to be someone who's like completely white you know i, I have no idea uh, on the same same token i don't know what it means to be like you know a a black person or african-american person in the united states of america um because of uh, of the mix that's kind of my take on on how i feel about things and that's that's been the path of of how I've approached life and, mm-hmm. and these specific issues as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I have a perspective that racism is very much something that is learned. And when you have these broad experiences with people of different race or cultures or whatever, those lines tend to get blurred and those prejudices tend to fall away. So I feel that racism stems from people having a lack of experience or a lack of knowledge when it comes to interacting with People that are from 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 everywhere, right? Well, yeah. and, and that's where the fear comes comes in, and it's been indoctrinated, right? Because it, if they don't have the experience, the experience came from a parent or a grandparent who exactly. said, "Hey, so don't associate with those folks because they're criminal or they tend to be criminal," um, you know, in, in a very disgusting, very broad uh, way of of describing that. Not really even understanding the social political. Um, aspects of, of what they're talking about they're they just um basically uh bottom line it and in in their bottom in the bottom line of of how they perceive the world and perceive people they've um bestowed that upon their offspring their their kids you know and 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 little johnny no, doesn't know any different so he mm-hmm. goes to school and he drops an n-bomb on a kid because grandpa said, you know, mm-hmm. and and that's where it all starts. And um, I, I think that's where a lot of it uh, comes from. It gets gets um, continued. And so when we have someone like like Trump, um, that he's inflicting an, a, a huge amount of damage because of his position and how he furthers these thought processes. Mm-hmm. Because you would like to have someone in leadership that would refute some of these notions that that would say, "Look, <laughs> we're not going to go there," you know. And instead of the the usual uh, lesson that Grandpa or Daddy teaches Johnny, you know, White Johnny, I'm talking about. Um, so so it's yeah, it, uh, someone someone like like Trump then begets um, organizations like. Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter may have preceded Trump, but but it definitely gained strength because it's the the exact 
polar opposite of what what he's going to put forth, right? And so it's very necessary for that to happen um, and for that to exist in order to um, to combat some of, some of this hatred and, and ignorance that exists within um, those paradigms, those the, the way people think mm-hmm. and the way they, they bestow that upon their kids. Right. right. To the point that, you know, it's learned, learned mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. So broadening that out to, let's say, like, not necessarily the sort of deep red, you know, rural states, but speaking about, like, systemic racism as a whole, like, I was, I'm a white person, I was, I went to a pretty uh, mixed school, Uh, there were um, sort of housing projects right down the street from where I live, so there was definitely a mix of people. Having said all of that, while I never sort of grew up thinking I was racist or behaving racist as far as I knew, um, it's interesting now to sort of obviously think about this in a systemic way and and myself and other white people benefiting from years upon years upon years of, of this this larger concept being baked into like the entire system mm-hmm. and the way that America works. Um But in terms of this concept of like learning and unlearning, I feel like that's one way that I've sort of tried to chuck myself or felt alienated and thinking of sometimes it feels as if there's no, like I want to believe that we can unlearn and change and shift. Um, And Mm -hmm. sometimes I Mm -hmm. feel like there's a focus on the fact that either we can't necessarily do that or white people could never possibly understand or make a substantial change. Um, So I'm curious what you think about coming from the context of learning, um, whether this on a sort of systemic level, uh, do you think everyone is like that? Do you think it can be unlearned? Um, Oh, absolutely. It absolutely can be unlearned. And it all, (laughs) All you have to do is try and it and it starts with yourself um, and and how you position yourself in society. And it's asking yourself that question of how do I operate on a day to day basis? Who's in my direct inner circle of friends? When was the last time I actually sat down and had a conversation with a person that doesn't look like me? And <clears throat> I feel like if if that's something that you want and that's something that you want to be able to um, really – a place that you really want to operate from, then you just have to put forth a little effort. Now, I think everybody needs to be open to allowing – allowing room for people to, to figure this out from themselves. Like for example, at our bar, we, we sit around all the time and and have these conversations um, with people that are of all different types of races. And I feel like those conversations are, um, you know, very, very productive. And I, I honestly feel like every time I get up from the table, I walk away with, a different perspective that I wasn't really aware of. And I'm also hoping to, um, you know, 
honor and also if I can educate somebody on my perspective and, and offer them a different way of thinking, then that's what I try to do in these situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what, what came to mind was um, this, this matter of, of peer review, right? And what I mean by that is, so you're sitting in a group and you're all white, uh, and I've been, I've been there where people don't think, because I can transcend different circles, right? People don't think anything about saying something racist, and no one's calling anyone out. And at that at that point, like the peer review uh, concept comes in, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you are you, are you going to sit there quietly and just let this person say something racist, or actually, will you actually like um, speak up and go, "Hey, <laughs> that's not cool." Um, I think those moments are huge in making sure that some of these notions are not uh, co-opted as groupthink immediately just because someone um, didn't say anything. They may have been uncomfortable. They knew for a fact that, wait a minute, that was a racist statement that came within this group. And it may, may have been a party, a social setting or whatever, and someone blurts something very irresponsibly and ignorantly. And the whole group just kind of carries on. I, I feel like everyone then carries the the blame that f- in that moment that furthers, you know, racist notions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what that's one way of you know that's one way of of, of ch- kind of checking things you know as as they happen. And of course, I don't have multiple or many opportunities to see that, you know, so you, you don't know what's going on on a Saturday night at, you know, a hundred, you know, thousands of parties across the U S or dinner parties and what's being said. Um, if people were just responsible in how, how they thought about things or even like spoke out, um, about what, what notions are being brought forward, mm-hmm. uh, that just don't make sense. And then, based in ignorance. Um, yeah. Yeah, when it's, when it's some scientific notion or, or a notion about wh- whatever, pe- people are quick to call out. Like, no, nah, you're wrong about that. You know, Ford Mustang, this and that. And <laughs> 1970, you know, 1974 Ford Mustang wasn't six-cylinder. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you just said something racist back then. Uh, can we call that out too, you know? Or challenge you on that, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's a, it's uncomfortable, but we can talk about other things. Like, I don't know. I just randomly brought up the Mustang. No, no offense to Mustangs, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I see a lot of effort though from people that you know want to change their perspectives and their point of view. Well, we live in a, in liberal circles here in in Houston. Houston looks like it's red on the electoral map. But it's not. Oh, no, no. Well, at least in Montrose. In Montrose, we're pretty blue, and, mm-hmm. and it, we're we're in liberal surroundings. But when when the folks come in from from the suburbs, you get different notions. Right. Um, <laughs> I talk to the folks from the suburbs, though, and you know I'm from the suburbs, and I grew up in the suburbs. Right. My mom's from the suburbs. Um, no, but I remember that one time when you came home and you were with your girlfriends for 
you know, that had been girlfriends with you for a long time and somebody dropped the N-bomb inadvertently and mm-hmm. they completely forgot that you were even in the car. And then mm-hmm. there was this eerie silence, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. um, remember that? <laughs> I do remember that. I do remember that. And I was too in shock. to to actually do anything yeah but i mean the silence alone was was telling right (laughs) was telling telling for sure yeah yeah and i've been in professional situations where someone you know dropped an n-bomb and and i go i'm sorry excuse me like what what are you saying you know what i mean it's like um yeah that's not it's not cool (laughs) yeah Yeah, I also, you know, speaking about, like, difficult conversations, I feel like that's one area that I'm always sort of dismayed to see isn't necessarily held up as one of the most important things when we're talking about changing the way that people live or the people, the way people understand. You know, to me, it's quite clear that, you know, of course, I think there are a lot of people that are very set in their ways and that can't change. But I also think there are a lot of people that just don't have the information or don't don't know or um you know I think about this all the time I thought about it when the me too movement started like to me I want to sit down with Louis CK and have a conversation about like so wait what happened you know um (laughs) yeah (laughs) and 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 the whole sort of like just silencing of you know oh you're a you're a white cis man or you're just a man or you're you know you're not transgender so therefore you don't get to participate in this conversation and to me, it's strange because it's like, you know, I, I understand it's difficult and I understand that some people are unwilling to or are just even unable to speak about these things. But to me, a lot of people are and I feel like we would all do better, like you said, after having these conversations with your staff, like we could all walk away probably either learning something new or just gaining some different perspective on an issue or um sort of the seeing, you know, the myriad of ways that we sort of are quick to judge other people and their intentions and all of that. Um, it just feels like everyone is so angry, which makes sense, you know? Right. Um, and and you said a key word there, it's intention, right? It's like when you, when you sit down and have these conversations, really asking yourself what your intention is, are you coming into this conversation with an open heart and open mind? Or are you, in fact, pissed off about something? Because that's not a time and place to have a conversation. Um, and, and the only real change is going to be created with having an open heart and open mind and coming from a place of love and respect, no matter where the other person is, is at in their life. Because, yeah. <laughs> and I think yeah. you have to meet people where they're at. Yeah. Yeah, it's about del- delivery too, right? And and how right. Um, but but I mean, there a lot of this can be sourced out of anger because these issues make make one ang- angry. Yeah. Um, you know, especially the issues that that Black Lives Matter stands for. Those are it's seriously anger-inducing um, issues. Um, but if a person that was white came to me and said, look, I'm trying to implement these changes in my life. 
I have been, you know, living in my bubble, so to speak. And I'm, I'm interested in learning your perspective. I'm interested in changing. I would sit down and have an honest conversation with them without judging. And I think that's, that's where we have to have to come from if we want these changes to actually happen is, you know, not judging people for where they're at in that moment if they're trying to create change in their lives. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Going back to talking about like having conversations and the anger and all of that, you know, it's hard. I think I, I totally see where you're coming from, Jasmine. And, you know, I felt like in my own personal life, for example, I had to go through a period of like serious, intense rage and anger in order to get to a place where I was able to kind of sit down and be calm and have a conversation and like, you know, process all of my traumas and stuff. Um, so it's hard. It's hard because I feel like everything's, all of this stuff is happening all at once. You know, like we're trying to solve a problem at the same time, you know, and, and to differing degrees depending on who we're talking about, but at the same time that we're also really angry. And I, I think that reflects in multiple different movements. You know, it's like they're all sort of coming from a place of we can't take this anymore. It's too much, you know, enough of this. Um, but to try to create a sort of like sustainable um, solution or change within that, I think is something that, you know, I always want to try and like tinker with it and like find the solution, but maybe it's just to sort of accept that all of those flavors are going to be sort of blending together all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, so- the solutions to our systemic racism is- going to take i mean that's going to come over time it's going to take right. a long time yeah. for that to happen um and yeah. you know this whole notion of defunding the police um is is a start uh, but but it's it's already <laughs> on the wrong foot because of the terminology of it you know when someone mm-hmm. says defunding the police they think oh there will be no more police but that's not that, that's not what the concept is the concept is bring the funding down and have, you know, police institutions be accountable for um, how they're going about um, executing their duties before you give them a ton of money uh, from from the community and from taxes. And um, defunding the police also means let's take away some of these extra funding uh, that, you know, gives a certain amount of privilege um, to police institutions to, you know, do whatever other activities that are beyond policing. Um, mm. and, and the history of the police department, when, you know, I've, this was something that I just picked up from a number of NPR um, episodes, giving credit to NPR there, but um, I didn't, necessarily realize like the Minneapolis police department history and how it actually came about and what its mission was. And when you have something that's deep rooted racist from that goes back, you know, century and a half or a couple of centuries and you, you don't dismantle that and kind of start over with a different mission or a mission statement, you're actually carrying forth that culture that's just going to continue to create these these major problems like you know like the George Floyd episode 
um, mm-hmm. and um, and and there's yeah there's there's a it's called systemic because it's built into the system built into the culture and it's built into the system because mm-hmm. of the culture and because of the history mm-hmm. because of wanting to hold on to these things and so you know making those types of changes will um those those are somewhat nuanced as well i mean it could be direct and you can just like um destroy the whole thing and start over um but that it will take time. It's just going to take time, like everything, everything else. But Black Lives Matter is already making a huge impact upon that, um, and that it's generating um, interest across the board. You know, people of all color mm-hmm. are identifying with it, um, and you have, you know, celebrities and other people, and and you know, people that are not of color uh, correctly. Um, identifying the fact that yes, Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that we're negating all other lives, you know, and that that was the first pushback from uh, the um, you know the, the Trumpian society, right? Like or or philosophy, where they just started pushing back on that and, and using this rhetoric that that's even more racist. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> So, yeah, it's uh, solutions will will come, but they're going to come over time, especially when things are systemic. You have to break down the system. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be one of two ways, you know. It can go slow, or we can start a revolution. <laughs> but we don't want a revolution in the United States of America. Um, that's, you know, that would be more damaging than anything else. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder though, you know, when you think back to like the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, it's like, what is it really going to take, you know, and, and where have we misunderstood or, um, you know, at at so many points in history, it's like, we think we have it figured out, or we think we're gonna, our, our minds have changed, you know, or the ways that we live in the world have changed in order to um, sort of solve for these issues. But to me, it seems like I too, I don't, I know, (laughs) I don't want a revolution either, but I also am confused based on how slowly or even, yeah, how slowly these things do go and how it's always this sort of like two steps forward. Yeah, and it's it's also about, you know, naivete, right? Like, and, and I'm guilty of that. It's, um, so Barack Obama becomes president and I'm, I've right. got my hooray moment, you know, wow, we have, you know, African-American in the White House and it's been, you know, it's been developing like this notion, I'll just share a personal notion of like how I've seen how people look at me and like here in the U S mm-hmm. right. Ever since I came as, mm-hmm. as a 14 year old, when I was first here, there was, it was a bit of fear of like, because I landed in South Texas and it's mostly white, and you you wonder like what what do they think of me like because of what I look like? And I had a had a little afro, and you know it's, <laughs> um, and and that develops over time, and it you go into your twenties and you're still thinking that like when you encounter someone on the street, um, specifically white white person, I I would wonder like what 
what does this person think of me? It's not like it's pervasive and it's always on my mind, but you think about mm-hmm. that. Um, and then as we further, as we get further in, in, um, in our development here, you know, with Clinton and, uh, and then with Barack Obama, I was very relaxed. I was like, not even thinking that thought process until Trump enters the White House. And then it's mm. that feeling, that eerie feeling all over again. Because I could not understand how people could vote for a man who was blatantly racist. You know, and, and so even like discussions that, that I would have pre his, like while he was campaigning, I, I would go, how could you support or vote for a man who's like, he's definitely said racist things and he's he's blatantly racist like that's an affront to me personally you know so then i wonder about all the trump supporters that i might may encounter and i don't know who's voted for trump but that immediately came into my mind like oh well how's this person looking at me you know that plays in the in the back of my head so you get uh, a couple of steps forward like you said and maybe a step backwards um Mm. And these things do come in cycles. And uh, as we speak, I believe Biden's going to win. Like he just wrapped up Wisconsin. I think Michigan's coming soon. Um, And then there might be one more state that he needs to capture before he's uh, declared uh, the winner. So then, you know, we're going to have that that cycle is going to go the other way again. And there's going to be corrections, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that going to look like four years from now, eight years from now? Um, who knows? And, and, right. and, but Madame definitely more prepared for the fact that, well, wait a minute, let's not get too comfortable here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, it, it can, it, it's, it's not that I fear for my life, but you can get a little scary about how, what you, how, how are you perceived just, like you said, indiscriminately, you know, mm-hmm. um, like how, how, how are people seeing me just because of what I look like? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I wonder too, like, you know, speaking, I, I, I'm, I'm just sort of surprised. Like the thought that keeps going through my head about the election this year is like, I understand on every level how people were sort of more taken by and impressed by Barack Obama and how he was a lot more interesting and more impressive than Biden. But after these four years of having Trump in office, I'm, I am definitely surprised that there aren't at least as many, if not more people voting democratically, <laughs> um, and and I think this extends, you know, farther beyond the election and beyond race. Like, I, mm. I do feel like I'm being consistently called on my own naivete of, like, I didn't realize how many crazy people there were, you know, mm. and, and existing <laughs> within so many other communities. Like, the spiritual community right now, I feel like there is su- such craziness going on in regard to you know, conspiracy theories and, and who people are voting for. That's, um, that's, yeah, really quite shocking, unfortunately. Um, and it's like, you don't, it's like, you really don't know where you stand. 
I guess, which is sort of what I feel like I was hearing you saying, you know, like, okay, well, maybe I need to be more cautious and thinking about this or, you know, maybe I was making assumptions that were just not true. Um, so Jasmine, <laughs> I'm curious because I feel like there's a lot of, um, focus on and just like involve this whole like white women anti-racism thing. Okay. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like, um, like as a woman, I'm just curious what sort of like bizarre ways that you sort of felt, um, sort of sitting in the middle of, of all of these different things. Like I, I f- live in a community right now in Colorado that has a lot of pretty like, not a lot of, but a handful of very like sort of PC virtue s- signaling type of white ladies, white spiritual ladies. Um, and I'm curious if like, it, it's a weird thing, right? Because I feel like so many of these women and men too, obviously, but women specifically are like really trying to do the right thing and learn. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you've ever been caught in a weird situation of sort of like someone assumes they're saying the right thing or doing the right thing or thinking about it in the right way. And you have a slightly different opinion and whether you've sort of interacted in that space before of like white ladies, like virtue signaling to you or something. (laughs) Well, it it depends on where they're coming from. Like if they're operating from a place of guilt, then, you know, I don't feel like I'm anyone's victim um, Mm -hmm. or a victim in these, in these circumstances at all. I've never felt that way. Um, But again, I, just energetically try to fill a situation out because I want to try to help and try to create change if I can and try to educate if I can or offer my perspective or change a perspective if that's a possibility. Um, And honestly, I really appreciate anyone who's trying on any level. (laughs) Um, So it, it really depends. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's, that's a question that women, uh, white women specifically, because that's what you just focused on, can ask themselves mm-hmm. is, where am I exactly operating from? Am I operating from a place of guilt? Because if I'm operating from a place of guilt, then why? And then just kind of going back from that place and figuring out where is this coming from? Because that's not necessarily, uh, you know, the most appropriate way to to approach these situations either. Um, does that answer yeah. <laughs> your your question? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'd love to elaborate on the victim part a bit more and sort of how you both grapple with that in a situation. And of course, this again, could be applied to not just issues of race, but Mm -hmm. any Mm -hmm. issues of wrongdoing done to us, you know, and that there is this complete lack of fairness um, and justice on so many levels uh, as it relates to how black people have been treated throughout history in so many countries, but even just specifically talking about this one. Um, And I'm sure you've both felt like, how could you not like 
you know, a victim or a target or something like that. And I'm curious in your own sort of movement forward and your own, I guess, even activism in a way, like how you grapple with the victim versus responsibility thing um, and how that's played out for you both. Well, well, from, from my perspective, um, you know, having, (laughs) having gone through um, extensive psychotherapy, nine nine years of it, I, um, I forsake the victim tag, right? And so I, I have trouble with that from a personal standpoint. So I don't know. Um, I, I don't uh, identify as as victim either, um, and and I, mm-hmm. I tend to move away from any any of that notion, um, any of those notions. So it's um, so the, that's so it's difficult to answer that that particular question from from that perspective. Um, I. Um, you know, from a societal standpoint, I actually l- look at people's ignorance, and um, because I think hatred comes from from ignorance, it's racism com- mm-hmm. comes from ignorance, and I I feel compassion for people who um, are are inherently ignorant, and and I say that very carefully like i feel compassion and i would uh invite them to um become a little bit more educated about what they're doing or or about how they're thinking uh in terms of people's differences and who they're following it's it's off, often who you follow who you learn from um that has room for improvement um you know and and from my cultural standpoint as well um we it the caribbean culture is, stands very very strong in terms of how we identify um and that that's a whole nother conversation about how within colonial history um you know people of color in the caribbean outnumbered the, the white population uh, you didn't have that here in the south it was not not the case at all, and so you have mm-hmm. a different social political um, history there right where um, there there's a there's a different there's a little bit of a different percep- perception a little bit of a little different paradigm um, mm-hmm. from from that standpoint um, yeah. I feel like I went a little bit around the world here to like answer your question, but I hope I did. <laughs> yeah. Or, and, and I guess it's just like, you know, again, maybe it's sort of in line with how we have to sort of deal with the fact that we're going to have movements or feelings that are mixed with both sort of compassion and empathy, but also anger and rage, um, you know, like in sort of listening to you speak, I was thinking about Jasmine and Jasmine's brother who's been incarcerated. And it's just like, how can you not sort of feel, you know, for lack of a better term, like fucked by the system and be operating from that, you know, place. (laughs) Um, and, uh, like that's, that's, that's challenging. And and I, I find myself sort of straddling both fields of being like, 
you know, I look back like my father's gay and I spent a lot of time thinking about and researching and exploring issues around the gay revolution. And one of my um, heroes, Larry Kramer, was the founder of ACT UP, who did all this sort of like performative activism around AIDS. And it was coming from a very like angry, rageful place, you know, and that at sort of the height of the mm-hmm. AIDS crisis is what um, really sparked a lot of like necessary, important conversation, even if that wasn't representative of how the movement was going to like progress as a whole. Um, but I, I just sort of catch myself sometimes because sometimes I got, I get frustrated and angry that so many of these movements, sometimes black lives matter. Although I feel like black people have more of a right to feel like a victim than anyone else, but also in, you know, feminism and in the gay rights movement, it's, uh, sometimes I, I wish, uh, that like you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you wasn't as loud of a theme in some of these movements, even though I understand why it's there, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a vicious cycle that will feed yeah, upon itself. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, you want to expand? No, I, it's up to us to stop that cycle. And, and what you were just saying, Anya, I just think about, yeah, if, if I decided to operate from that place, then I would just be stuck. And, um, and and I don't want to live that way. And I know based on the relationship that I have with my brother, that he doesn't operate from a place that is quote unquote stuck either. And, um, Mm -hmm. and I I've watched what he's endured and if he can endure what he's endured, then I can definitely on the outside, you know, deal with these issues and, and deal with what I'm presented with on a daily basis. Um, and, and I just think about that when we talk about the quote unquote system, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, anger begets more anger. And so that, that's what I mean by, yeah. by this vicious cycle. So, you know, if I'm dealing with victimhood and I victimize um, the, the opponent, <laughs> right? Then we're, it's just perpetual, um, yeah. And that doesn't bring a solution or peace, yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm curious. We've talked about this sort of in broad strokes, but if there was something sort of like key or poignant for you that you, you know, not not that you want to disagree with the sort of generalized Black Lives Matter movement, but let's say there was something you could add to it uh, that was specific to your point of view or your experience. I'm curious what that might be, if that's um, a possible question to answer. (laughs) Like what what sort of framework or um, viewpoint do you wish was sort of spoken about more, uh, either specific to Black Lives Matter or just... Um, well, specific to Black Lives yeah, Matter or just more broadly, it's just what I was mentioning earlier about just that willingness to sit down. And when I mean sit down, I'm not talking about have a conversation over Instagram or <laughs> Facebook. I'm talking yeah. about actually sitting down with somebody face to face and having a real conversation. And I think we all, no matter what race you are, have to be willing to do that. 
in order for there to be real change. And, um, you know, it, it starts locally. And it, when I mean locally, it starts with yourself and then your your immediate surroundings and your immediate interactions with people. And that's what I would like to add to to all of these movements, if, if I can, you know. Um, for me, there's, there's this notion, uh, and I may be completely, entirely, gross, grossly wrong on this, but um, I'm going to put it out there. It's like, if you're not speaking out, or if you're not completely on our side, and you're completely agreeing with what we're saying, and you don't post something on social media, right. then you are not you're not furthering the cause or you're I don't think the expression is you're against us but that's a little bit of the notion of what's going on and maybe I'm not elegantly enough putting it the way it's been put but um when I see that I I disagree I, I disagree too. with that uh, tremendously because I feel like you know People have their different ways of being activists. Yes. And I can cite uh, an, an amazing example of how um, someone gets called out on social media. And I'm with Jasmine on this. Like Social media, for, uh, <laughs> for the purposes of people's attention def- deficiency, um, is now 15 seconds, right? Or a minute and a half. Like there, there's mm-hmm. a reason why when you post an Instagram story, it does not go further than 15 seconds. <laughs> it's because people are not paying attention. So how can you, f- how can you put forth an intelligent discussion or intelligent notion within 15 seconds? And people try to do it all the time, um, either to get attention or to actually like they think they're making a point, um, mm-hmm. and basically they're just inciting anger and you know likes on one end and anger on the other side. But before I digress, so on social media, there was this huge uh, argument within our local community about something that was insensitively placed on social media. And um, it, this person suffered from it. Um, He was, he was attacked as well and he wasn't necessarily right. Um, my approach to that is, then this person was, was a friend of mine. We completely differ ideologically. And I caveat everything with, hey, I will share my opinion with you if you ask me for it. But you and I are drinking buddies. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm your friend. If you ask me about my opinion about this, I will gladly share it with you. And then otherwise I leave it alone. I feel in... And the way I interact with people in my activism is is through example. Like I will lead by how I'm um, conducting myself, and I I don't feel like I'm super effective uh, waving a flag or posting incessantly on no. social media. I just don't have that specific skill set. I'm more of a diplomat. Mm-hmm. I will use my diplomatic skill set to attempt to persuade someone but not and it would be a voluntarily voluntarily uh, requested opinion so in other words mm-hmm. I'm not going to put my opinion on someone who's not asking for it no um, 
and because I feel like I like, don't do that either. No. <laughs> by the way, no, no, I, yeah, no, I feel are, that's that's microaggression. These are, yeah, these and, are intelligent conversations. Yeah, yeah, and so, um, so so from that standpoint, I you know I just feel like um, there are ways that we can be active within our community and have quote unquote activism. And I'm not going to pretend to be an activist um, because I'm not. And um, and I, I feel like so, uh, sometimes there's an attempt to co-opt um, the the energy around someone to say, hey, uh, why aren't you uh, saying something or stepping up? or um, And that's a different context from if you're in the room having dinner with a group. Um, I, f- I find if there's something on Facebook, et cetera, I don't live on, on Facebook. Facebook, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't draw me to make comments because I feel like it's ineffective. I, f- mm-hmm. I feel like the, yeah. um, you know, the 15 second rule, so to speak, minute and a half rule, like people are not spending time really having any sort of intelligent discourse. They may they may make intelligent statements, but but that gets lost because no one's necessarily paying enough attention to express their thoughts correctly. Right. I'm yeah. off my soapbox now. <laughs> I like it. I like you know the best podcast guests are the ones that talk a lot. You know, then I have to do a lot less. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The social media thing is is bizarre and i i think so i think there are so many people that live in such sort of isolated white mm-hmm. suburban communities and like the only interaction they have with black people or like with right. anything regarding what to do in this context is via you know these sort of talking heads on social media who you know, I think some of them have a lot of intelligent things to say, but I think unless you actually diversify, exactly. like, the long, you know, interactions that you have with people in your daily exactly. life, I think we're just, even if we think, and again, like you said, Jasmine, like, I agree, I'm I'm grateful for anyone trying at all. Um, yeah. but there's something sometimes where I just like, there's like all these people that are just like running around like chickens with their heads cut off. You know, it's just like the same echo chamber, you know, um, spiel from one person to the next. And it's, uh, you know, it's distracting. I don't, I don't, yeah. yeah. The social media thing is distracting from the root of the real problem, which is right. what we have, we've expressed, um, a few times on this podcast and is that, you know, those, those interactions, tangible interactions are, are really how to, um, mend <laughs> what's happening here. So, yeah. 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 I'm, uh, what is it? I mean, in terms of your daughter, I'm curious, like, I guess in regard to all of the social media stuff, I just interviewed a 16 year old on my podcast, which was, quite fun and sort of humbling to to listen to uh someone her age you know I always would sort of complain a big reason I started this podcast was like I was so sick of you know um the stereotypes around millennials coming from like older generations and 
you know, getting angry at older people for being like, oh, you're going to have to solve this. You know, I'm on my way out. And it was interesting to sort of be called on that perspective <laughs> myself of like, oh, shit, you know, here I am being yeah. like, oh, I hope the 16 year olds will save the world. And they'll be like, yeah, we can't even vote. Like, why are you putting this on us? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like and then, you know, coupled with now no one's in school and um, or a lot of people aren't in school rather. And there's a lot of, you know, these kids new and engaged with social media from a much younger age than I think I did. Um, but I'm curious, like what conversations you've had with her that have sort of illuminated things for you in a different way regarding these movements or like, I'm always curious about what we learn from the kids <laughs> and how they're more enlightened sometimes and smarter than we are. And if you've had any of those kinds of conversations with her around all of these issues. Um, I, I personally haven't, um, or have I? We have. We have. Okay. <laughs> you just don't remember. <laughs> well, well, you're pointing to me to go first, but you go we, first. We too. had to tell her about George Floyd oh, when it happened. Right, 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 right. So we don't, we don't actually live with TV in our house. Yeah. So, um, her news really comes from us. She doesn't, she's not mm. on social media. She was on TikTok, and I had to take that away because <laughs> it was becoming quite the obsession. So, um, you know, most of her, her news comes from, from us, but the, the kids today, well, the teenagers today, the, those that are in her, her age group, um, I feel like are much more open-minded than we give them credit for, for one, um, and, and definitely more than whenever I was growing up. And her immediate group of friends, is, they're, you know, very culturally diverse. She has, you know, friends from all different races, um, but when I when I sat her down to tell her about George Floyd, you know, she was really just quiet and just absorbing the the information. She didn't really have much to say about the situation itself. It was more just, you know, deep almost hurt for for what transpired and um, you know, a little, a little corner tear in her eye. And she, it's not something that she, you know, carries with her or talks about, but what we try to do as parents is give her as many experiences as we possibly can. Cause my whole, my whole thing was, I just want her to, to be 18 and not, have any questions about who she is or what she can do in life or um, needing to, or feeling like she needed to have experiences that she hasn't had. So she lives a very well-rounded lifestyle. And um, I think that, you know, that's, that's just our perspective as far as parenting, but as she ages, it's, it's starting to really come to life. And, um, you know, she's a very, very productive member of society at this point in time. So 
I don't know if that if that answers your question, Anya, but um, she doesn't have a lot of 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 opinions right now, at least about politics and and race and um, you know her general experiences in life are are good, and the people that she mm-hmm. interacts with are yeah. I mean, she's also very busy. Like she's she's a you know very good student. Pretty much straight A's. Mm-hmm. Um, play soccer. Like as a freshman, she made the varsity team, and was was a uh, one of the high score high scoring uh, goals. Well, one of the she was scoring a lot of goals. How about that? Um, <laughs> and this season, she's a cross country runner. Um, and when during this, you know, during the summer. When she's not training and practicing, she's actually working at the bar because <laughs> mm. we we wanted her to have some experience mm-hmm. working. Um, you know what I mean? And so, before the pandemic, you know, I travel with her a lot too because I want to make sure that she actually sees what it's like to be in a third world country yeah. and and that sort of thing too, which I think is really important. But. And we, we limit her screen time. She doesn't do any video games. Um, and, yeah, I mean, so it's... I I think that gives her a well-rounded um, experience that's mm. definitely tactile and interactive. You know, we encourage um, so, socialization for her. Um, so... Yeah, and not not having I haven't had a TV since 1999, and so not having that blaring in the background, so to speak, you know, it doesn't. Like there's there's not a whole lot of extra information that seeps into her her realm, so to speak. Yeah, well, it's it's good. I mean, I I you know one of my sort of silver lining hopes about all of this, on top of just like you know. Obviously, kids can be very hurt and traumatized and have their childhood stealin, stolen away from them. But also, there's a lot of resilience there. And mm-hmm. I'm sort of, I'm grateful that things are being sort of, you know, I feel like for me, I was 12 when, or 13 when 9-11 happened. And that was sort of my first confrontation, I feel like, with the reality of the world in many ways, you know, and school shootings and all of this stuff. And, um, I wonder what the effect of all of this stuff transpiring for these kids from such a young age is in their, you know, ability. And this is what I was with this, this girl, Fanula that I interviewed, you know, her ability to just be like, yeah, this isn't, this is all sort of crazy. And I'm, I don't want to live <laughs> like this. And I just don't I'm think thinking, they are though, you know, right. Yeah. You know, I just yeah. feel like that generation is, <laughs> they're special. And the fact that I, when I, when I just watch her get out of the car and go to school and how the kids all embrace each other, um, just, just getting out of the car and walking to their classes. It's just, in my personal opinion, there is this camaraderie that I didn't experience growing up. There is mm. this just general respect and love. And I'm talking about all different kinds of kids that are, mm. you know, in, in high school, you know, just 
transgender, you know, all different races, different backgrounds, cultures, um, you know, transgender. And it's, it's, it's amazing to watch. And I look forward to watching these kids grow up and, and be leaders in our society. Yeah. Me too. I didn't think we could like end this conversation on an uplifting note, but I feel like <laughs> we should save that. Mm, that's a good one. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no I one. think it's good. I, I, uh, appreciate you both for having yeah. this conversation for me, which I feel like in and of itself was a sort of intense, difficult conversation. And then sort of placing it into the day after the election added a whole other layer of, <laughs> of intensity. So us. yeah, of course. Um, before it. we wrap up, uh, Jasmine knows the drill, but I always ask the people that were on my podcast if they could recommend one book to the audience. Um, something that was particularly meaningful for you that has to do with this conversation or just in your life in general. Um, and I compile a list for everyone. And then sometimes we pick one of the books to read in a book club together. So it's oh, been wow. kind of cool to, to circle through. Um, so the, the one that comes to mind because I spoke about it to, uh, very recently, I think I recommended it to someone is, is a, a book called The Anatomy of Love by Helen Fisher. Mm-hmm. It's a 400-page book, but it deals with um, <laughs> it deals with why relationships last approximately five years from an anthropological study standpoint. Um, cool. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, but, <clears throat> yeah, my friend AJ, I think I I was recommending that to. He's a he's a bit younger and. He's coming out of a, out of a relationship, mm. um, so there cool. you go. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to recommend two books <laughs> go because for they it. go hand in hand with each other. But this is a book I actually recommended to you, Anya. I hope it hasn't been recommended on the podcast yet. But it's <laughs> a book called goddesses in every woman and it's by Jean Shinoda Bolin and there's also a book that she did called goddesses in every I'm sorry gods in every man as well (laughs) and um you know both of those books go deep into how the archetypes show up in our lives and I feel like both of those books have been extremely um, educational for me in understanding where a lot of the stuff <laughs> that we talked about on this podcast comes from. So I, I highly recommend both of those books. Awesome. Yeah. I don't think anyone has said it yet and I'm glad you did. Oh, good. I have, <laughs> I haven't read the gods and every man one, but I definitely, there are some books that you just sort of like keep it's like, you just keep referring to them. You keep going back and back and back yeah. and like learning all these new things. So awesome well thank you both again i really appreciate it and uh hopefully we can all get together in some sort of more sane time face to face <laughs> sometimes <laughs> we'll, we'll see how much changes over the next year <laughs> <laughs> thank who you so much. knows <laughs> yeah thank you guys
Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for sticking around and listening to that episode. Today, I'm going to play you out with Black Man by Stevie Wonder. I've had this song saved to play on the podcast for quite some time, and um, obviously today's episode applied pretty well to the theme of this song, so enjoy that. Again, if you would like to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash anyakots, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. Get access to all sorts of perks like playlists, bonus content, private WhatsApp groups, patron-led seminars, book clubs, contact lists, and probably a bunch of stuff that I am forgetting because there's so many perks now. Um, And as always, just uh, rating the podcast, subscribing to the podcast, commenting and sharing with a friend is very helpful. Thank you all so much for being here, and I will catch you next week.
sign is made. 